Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI. Happy Thursday. And thank you so much to Stephen for all the sweet jams. That you can check them out on FBI 94.5. The website, fbiradio.com. Oh, get my head together. Today we've got an academic on Out of the Box, so I better get my brain in order. Dr. Rebecca Sheehan is my guest today, and she's written and taught about history, philosophy, and music both here and in the United States. Her insane knowledge of music and history comes in handy every Monday morning on FBI when Rebecca comes into the station during Uproot with Georgia Hitch. She takes a musician from history and tells us what our musical spectrum would be missing if that artist or band didn't exist, and it's called Without. And uh, while FBI gets a little bit of time with Rebecca every week, we figured we were missing something. Dr. Rebecca Sheen's own history and music. Welcome. Hi, Ash. Thanks for having me. So you've been doing Without for a while. It's a fantastic segment. When did you start doing it? I think the end of February this year. Yeah. And is it? how does it fit into your life? How does it fit into my life? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about doing for a number of years. In fact, the, even the idea of Without, I was thinking about about five years ago in relation to Kate Bush because I kept listening to female artists and I thought, oh, without Kate Bush, this person wouldn't wouldn't be able to do what they do. So I'd been thinking about the importance of music history for understanding our own lives and our world. And I think for people who aren't political in the sense of being interested in government and Australian politics or international politics, people can still be politically engaged through culture. And so music history is a way, I think, of helping people to further harness that engagement they already have with music. Yeah, it's a very, very educational segment. I always learn something new and we're going to learn a lot more about music and history over the next hour, but much more about Dr. Rebecca Sheehan's life and music. We've got so many good tracks and this first one's from Massive Attack. Can you tell us why this one uh, sings to you? This is one of my favourite songs of all time and it was it was big the year that I had finished high school and moved out of home and went to university for six days and then dropped out to work at a small independent record company. Six days over it. <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't the right thing for me at that time. And this song, it just, it still to me sounds like long necks of VB and going <laughs> to cafes with friends and, and dancing till late at night. All right, on FBI 94.5. Massive attack. Unfinished sympathy.
here on FBI 94.5. It had to be done. Bit of Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, and uh, my guest today on Out of the Box is Dr. Rebecca Sheehan. And can you tell us how that song means something to you? Well, that song was around in the house when I was growing up. My brother's about nine years older than I am, and he was a huge Bowie fan. And I started learning to play the guitar, and he said to me, you'll never be a real guitar player unless you can play the entire Bowie songbook and also Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> which was pretty difficult as a 10-year-old. Your hands are pretty small. But I managed to do most of the Bowie songbook and Stairway to Heaven. And Ziggy Stardust was my favourite song of all of the Bowie ones to play on the guitar. 
And then over the years, Bowie's just, he's always there in a way. So important to our culture. And I saw a great BBC documentary about the history of rock and roll that had an episode that included David Bowie in it. And around that time, I saw the Todd Haynes film, Velvet Goldmine, which is an incredible film about glam rock and also the power of fandom. And it really illustrated to me and made me realise how important someone like David Bowie and he in particular was for the 1970s at a time when the gay liberation movement was starting for people who had different identities whether it was a different sexual identity than the norm or even if you were just one of those weird kids that to be able to listen to David Bowie in your bedroom and see pictures of him as Ziggy Stardust a third gendered alien who's come to an environmentally shattered earth to save us and through rock and roll it's a really amazing experience of validation so I really I love that song and it sounds incredible still. And you've written a lot on rock music and uh, you've written, I guess, a chapter, I don't know what I should really call it, titled Liberation and Redemption in 1970s Rock Music. And um, I I was reading it and you wrote about how rock posed a kind of threat to Christian values because, I mean, like rock was sexy, but then there was these rock rock evangelicals that were kind of, you know, taking rock and co-opting it. How did they make it okay? Well, they they replaced... So one of the interesting things about Ziggy Stardust and the way that Bowie positions him is he's very self-conscious about the idea of a rock star as a god and how and what the problems of that are. And so for Christian evangelicals to take rock on as their own wasn't that difficult because the structure of rock, worship worshipping a star at a concert is not dissimilar from worshipping in a church and God just replaces... The rock star. So they'd they'd have like a Christian Woodstock. Um, It's very uh, Jesus Christ Superstar kind of Well, that's right. And also I I think that because Jesus Christ Superstar came out just a few years before Bowie did Ziggy Stardust, I, I have no doubt that he was quite influenced by Jesus Christ Superstar in creating the Ziggy Stardust character is in a kind of musical conversation with Jesus Christ Superstar and sort of deconstructing the idea of of a rock idol and the idea of religion as well. It's really interesting. Um, And you've written about liberation brought on by rock music, but then you talk about market forces. I don't understand how you can be liberated by something that is affected by market forces. Can you kind of, you know, deconstruct that idea a little bit? Well, I think the same thing goes for us now. For many people who don't want to be part of the mainstream and and for whom culture is really part of identity, whether it's music or the clothes that you wear or where you eat or who you hang out with. You want to sort of opt out of the mainstream of things, but you can't because the market is everywhere. So everything that you buy, whether you're even getting clothes at secondhand stores or whatever, as long as, as long as you're trading in the world that we live in, you're, you're part of the market system. And in terms of what happened in the 1970s, the 1970s was really when rock music and popular mu- music became a global force. So prior to that time, it was American and British-centred and there started being record companies and outposts in countries around the world during the 1970s, which is part of what helps the Australian music industry to begin to flourish during that decade is because people are seeing these opportunities to make money. So on the one hand, it is about capitalising on music, but at the same time, it meant that musicians in in outposts from the power centres of the world could start to have careers in a way they mightn't have even dreamed of previously. 
We're about to take a song from Depeche Mode, but first I'd like to hear about a kind of rock and roll time in your life in New York. What kind of life were you living? I mean, one one thing that I know you were doing was making a sexual fantasy coffee table book at one point. Yeah, so I moved to New York in 1999. I'd, I'd finished uh, my degree, which I went back to do after dropping out. And then moved to New York and it was a really exciting year to be there because it was just before the turn of the millennium. So people were worried about the Y2K bug. There was all this paranoia and excitement in the air about this the, the turning of the millennia and the new century. And I first started working there researching a coffee table book about sexual fantasies and my, my boss had set up an office in his bathroom in this amazing <laughs> loft apartment on Fifth Avenue. So I was working in the bathroom and right near me was the, the litter box of their Bengalese tiger cat, this very handsome striped tiger cat uh, that I had to hand make it organic mints and alfalfa patties <laughs> and make sure that it's filtered drinking water was okay, in good order. Maybe not so rock and roll alive. <laughs> well, but it was in a way because I could say to friends, oh, I'm working in a toilet in a loft apartment on Fifth Avenue. It's, it's one of those extreme experiences I can't think of a better word than that right now that you have as part of your journey to get to doing what you want to do and it turned out well for me because I think maybe it was a bit of a test because I withstood the office in the bathroom and the cat attacking me my boss said to me I I want you to come and work with me in this internet startup company and so this was a time when The internet was really starting to boom. People still had dial-up access, so there was no cable or broadband then. It was when Google was starting, Amazon and eBay. It's hard to imagine now that once those were just these little tiny places that people thought, oh, maybe this will be a good thing. Yeah, with their their backyard furniture and big warehouses. That's right. People were just spending as little money as they could to start up a company hoping that then they'd be able to float it publicly and make millions, which a lot of them did. So this company was called Sputnik 7 and it had been founded and funded by Chris Blackwell, who was the founder of Island Records and discovered Bob Marley and U2. He's a major figure in the music industry. And my direct boss was a really big session musician in the industry as well. So I went in and was working there and it it was pretty incredible in terms of working with music-related things, which is what I'd been doing for years and I was really passionate about music, it was... I I didn't think I could be any further than where I was. It was really amazing. And Chris Blackwell would fly in from Jamaica in his private jet. The president of the company, Les Garland, was one of the co-founders of MTV. So I got to develop relationships with these people and one of the things about Les Garland that was amazing was that he didn't care whether I was answering the phone or and in startups people were doing all sorts of things so I was editing the website answering the phone doing a whole variety of things uh, and one of my favorite stories was that uh, I was telling him this idea I'd had about some movies being similar to each other one of them had Dennis Hopper in it and he called Dennis Hopper and conference called him into me on the telephone and said just tell Dennis Hopper your idea and I was thinking <laughs> oh no so wow. It was an amazing, amazing time. But I had this idea that I wanted to do a PhD and I just found that I was passionate about music but the industry itself, capitalism and thoughts about money and how it was going to be funded, how the company would survive were always dominant. 
And because of that, there was an absence of free speech. So when you need money from people, you always have to make sure that you're not going to say something that offends them. And I, I woke up very early one morning and walked down to the East River in this sort of very dramatic mode, actually, like, I'm just going to go and sit on the river at five o'clock in the morning <laughs> because that's what you do as a tortured artist. And I was listening to this singles collection of Depeche Mode. So this is also pre-iPod. So because I'd travelled overseas and hadn't taken my music collection, I took, I, I bought this singles collection and I was listening to it I'd loved Depeche Mode as a teenager I love Depeche Mode now and this is this is one of the songs that helped me to make the decision to leave New York and start a new life. You listen to FBI 94.5 my guest today Dr Rebecca Sheen she's brought in some Depeche Mode for you check it out.
listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5 with me, Ash Berdebez, and my guest today, Dr. Rebecca Sheehan, who, despite what it might say on the Wikipedia article, actually wrote about that last band that you just heard. She, uh, she broke the rules a little bit to give them the plug that they needed. So Helen Stella, how do you know Helen Stella? I met these guys from the band when I was living in Los Angeles doing my PhD, where I had this kind of in the first few years particularly, I think weird split life between university and then people who I'd known from my time in New York and music friends and film industry friends. So I met I met them and started going to see them play live. And it was a revelation for me, really. I realised that I hadn't been listening to music for a while, um, particularly since I left New York and had decided to go on the academic path. And when I started going to see these guys play, it was like the light had come back into my life because I realised there's great power in being a fan, being part of a community, going to see people play live. There's also a lot of pot smoking going on. California's the world capital for amazing (laughs) marijuana. And listening to Wall of Sound of music, which I've since learnt about the Wall of Sound with Phil Spector inventing it in the 1960s. So, but I didn't... I didn't intellectualize it. I was just there and really enjoying it. And I think it was that's, yeah, it's almost better. I feel like what's happened, I mean just personally, I don't know if anyone else can relate, is that as more music comes out and you read more music criticism online, everything becomes more editorialized. You lose the ability to be a fan a little bit. And it's like with you being inside the music industry is that you can start thinking about things in less of an emotional way, more of a logical way. And it takes away your ability to be, you know, a fully, you know, fully engaged fan. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that being a fan matters. You know, I think when you're a kid and a teenager, when you're a fan of something or someone, it's really empowering. It gives you some point of difference. It helps you make friends. It gives you something to think about and fantasise about or, or aim for. So it was just an amazing experience being back in a live room again, watching a band and really loving them. And it was revelatory for me as well because I realised that 
I didn't have to have my life so segregated so that I was a fan of music outside university and I was a feminist at university. I realised that maybe I could put them both together. So I started reading some academic writing about music and realised that, to my mind, it's amongst some of the best academic writing there is because most of the people doing it love music. Yeah. And they use it to talk about things that things that aren't the government, that aren't politics, things that are much more personal and emotional. And I think one of the things about academia is that, and like the point that you're making, when you have too much information, you start to operate too much in a realm of logic. And that's not where most of our lives are actually lived. So it was amazing for me to be able to bring music into my work and it set me on a whole new path in terms of what I was doing professionally. I think that's what I love about your writing when you're writing on music is that you try or you manage to make the music about people and what that signifies for people and what they need now in their lives like what's missing where we're going what the future holds and um, you managed to bring music and feminism together but can you tell us a bit about Cynthia Plastercaster? Well, Cynthia Plastercaster, again, relating to being a fan. So I started getting really into Helen Stella and going to see them play. And around that time, a friend of mine who I knew from New York told me the story about Cynthia Plastercaster, who was a groupie in the 1960s and figured out a way of distinguishing herself from other groupies by making plaster casts of the penises of the musicians she loved. She really loved Noel Redding, who was the bass player in the Jimi Hendrix experience. So she was trying to cast him and she says that Jimi Hendrix was in the way so she just had to, she didn't want to hurt Jimi's feelings so she did a plaster (laughs) cast of, of his penis. And she would have a friend with her who would perform oral sex on the person, in this instance, Jimi Hendrix, while she was mixing the the uh, mold getting the mold ready <laughs> oh so that that would maintain the person's erection and then so, so she has all these diaries like you keep as an artist or in art school of what happened so she records the incident about how Jimmy put his penis into the mold and so on and as the result of casting Hendrix's penis she became really infamous in the music scene so even uh, that band Kiss wrote a song about her in the 1970s because they really wanted her to cast them and she only ever cast people whose music she loved so she said no to them and they were so embarrassed that they wrote a song about her anyway and pretended that she had cast them really that's so weird it's it's really kind of creepy and the lyrics in it are plaster caster calls me by the name of master they've got they've managed to put their own sort of power spin on it when in fact the opposite was true god kiss does some ugly things yeah and I just thought when I heard her story I thought it was funny but I also thought there's so many amazing things embedded in that story even that she cast Hendrix in 1968 and 1968 was seen as a watershed year for history around the world particularly in terms of student movement so young people rising up and I thought oh again this difference between what's happening in the cultural realm and the political realm that she was enacting a kind of sexual liberation at a time when things were really changing for young women sexually. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you can actually link that to, you know, in an academic way to the history that is around it. And we've got a track to take now from a perfect circle called The Outsider. And this is from when you were in the States as well. So can you tell us a bit about this time in your life that you were listening to A Perfect Circle, why this song is important to you? Yeah, um, I love A Perfect Circle. I'd gotten really into Tool um, at one stage because I realised how angry I was. I'd never been into that kind of music and so I started listening to A Perfect Circle and uh, they have this amazing album called The 13th Step which is about 
12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, which are big in Los Angeles. It's like the world capital of self-help in a way. A lot of people are in therapy. A lot of people are in AA or NA or something, one of those sorts of groups. And why is that? Why LA? Well, I think because the music industry is so big there, the film industry is so big there. It's, it's a town that's centred a lot on the glamour industry and that means that your ego is at stake pretty significantly. So I think that when you're feeling fragile, you're much more likely to turn to substance abuse uh, and therapy. I mean, LA is also, it's a very kind of confronting and lonely town. And one of the things that people often say about it is because it doesn't have a town centre that's used, it's really fragmented. So it's hard for people to form communities in ways that they might more easily in other cities that are designed in a different way. And I had a really challenging time when I was there. There were amazing things happening intellectually. I was having a great time, but it was also probably the worst period for me in a almost lifelong struggle with depression that I've had. So at one point I was hospitalized and I was in a very severely suicidal mindset. And I had some amazing friends at the time who helped me get through. But a lot of people just say the absolute worst things. They, they, and, and I've been thinking about it the past few weeks in relation to Robin Williams and even the people saying abusive things to his daughter on Twitter yeah, that's about horrific. him being weak or Henry Rowland's initial commentary on people who kill mm-hmm. themselves. And I, even some people say to me, look, you know, all you need to do is get yourself out of the loony bin and go running in the mornings. And I was thinking, really, if it was that easy, I'd be doing it. I'd already be doing it. Yeah. And this song on on the album is about is written from the point of view of someone who just doesn't understand issues with mental health. And I listened to it and I used to listen to it over and over and it helped me to feel better. It helped me get some of my anger out. And if you're listening to this and any of this makes you feel particularly fragile, you're having a, a rough time, then 13, 11, 14 is how you can get in touch with Lifeline. So that's 13, 11, 14. And I mean, even I've, we've noticed since the death of, um, of Robin Williams, a lot of people have been going to see their GP. It's brought up for a lot of people the, you know, the way that they're feeling and, and it's really pushed them that extra step to getting the help they need. And yeah, it's probably, you know, it's the only silver lining to that really dark cloud that people mm. are getting the help that they need now so we've got a track to take from a perfect circle the outsider is the name of this song dr rebecca sheehan is my guest on out of the box today So could you please help me understand? 
out of the box. Meet people through their music on FBI.
fantastic disco track right there. Kimbra, so much fun. And uh, I haven't listened to any disco in a long time, but basically one of your articles about Giorgio Moroder got me back into disco. It kind of made disco meaningful to me. And why is disco meaningful to you? I think partly because I was born in the decade of disco, so I grew up listening to it. <laughs> had no choice. I had no choice. But, you know, I really love it because it, it sounds like joy. I mean, when you're on the dance floor in the middle of the night and you it's like running, you're full of endorphins, you're surrounded by people, you're involved in this group thing together. And even if you're not dancing, the music takes you, from, it takes me to a, to a happy place. Mm. And so one of the things I realised after I was really mentally unwell in LA was that I had to do a lot of things to try and pull myself out of it, include, including being careful about what music I listen to because some music I listen to and it makes me feel, it's kind of cathartic, but it's almost like pressing on a bruise. But I, I know that without question, if I'm feeling down, if I listen to the BGS, it will instantly change my mood. So listening to that, hearing that song on Kimbra's new album, I thought, oh wow, this is a great new disco track. It sounds like, sounds like eating yeah. white chocolate. Actually, um, if you're listening and you know anyone who's got the blues, you should just send them a really happy song or like a song that you think will make them feel better. I think that's a nice thing to do. Yeah. And so uh, with your Giorgio Moroda article, you talked about the history of disco and it's something that I didn't know anything about. A lot of people are just like, oh, disco, the 80s, you know, started in the 70s and Giorgio Moroda really headed up that entire, you know, and with Donna Summer. And why did disco die? And, you know, could it have been avoided? Well, I think that the biggest issue was in the United States, there was this backlash, the Disco Sucks movement, which was largely driven by white guys who loved rock music. Mm. And the analysis of it is that it was kind of sexist, homophobic, class-related, because disco had started to be seen as something that was aspirational. So people were lining up outside Studio 54 to get into a club that many of them would never get into. So mm. disco started to be seen as something that was exclusive. And I, I can understand why people would react against that. I'm not so sure about the other the other reasons for reacting to it. So in the United States, the record companies just kind of shut down the work that they were doing with disco artists. But disco itself didn't die. The kind of music there was rerouted and rebranded in the States. They called it dance music. And also people like Frankie Knuckles started house music and he said house music is disco's revenge. So disco <laughs> disco didn't die and it's great to hear it coming back as well with Giorgio Moroda and Daft Punk and now Kimbra's done this joyous song. Yeah, it's really good. So we are at the stage of the show where we're thinking got time for two more songs but there are three more songs that we really want to play uh what are we going to do we got yeah yeah yeah's zero and then we've got a couple of other tracks that mean a lot to you which one do we miss out on well because we can tell the story and then people can just find the song for themselves oh i didn't know you were going to put me on the spot i, like I, I wish i didn't have to uh <laughs> we are at that point well, we could miss out on the yeah, yeah, yeah's, yeah, okay. I think. So Zero, you were going to play because of your time in Sydney when you asked out your partner. Well, also because it, it came out the year I came back to Sydney and I just didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I hadn't finished my PhD. I just had enough of LA and I was desperately homesick. So I came home, wasn't sure how things were going to pan out and was hanging out with my partner, now partner Lachlan, who I'd known for almost two decades. 
We'd worked wow. in a studio together when we were very young, recording studio, and uh, we were hanging out a bit as friends. And I just thought, oh, look, I'm I'm going to work up the courage to ask him out. But of course, I didn't ask him in person. I sent him a text message saying something like, "Would he entertain the notion of going out with me?" <laughs> uh, and uh, luckily for me, he said yes. So this is a song that was really big for me that year. Um, Zero by the years, and I also really love the film clip because Karen O's oh, in so the clip, good. and that she's jacket. she's wearing a great jacket, a great outfit, and she's dancing along the street. And I notice actually that the film clip for that unfinished sympathy and also Kimbra, it's all women by themselves walking down the street, and there's something really amazing and empowering about that. So it was the clip too that makes me love that song. That's interesting. I didn't know that today had a theme. Well, n- nor, the nor did I. I, <laughs> I didn't know either. And so now we've got a track from a band that stole Dr. Rebecca Sheehan's partner from her at probably one of the worst times imaginable. Can you tell us a bit about that? So Lachlan was working on the Jezebel's first album, Prisoner. He'd, he'd produced and engineered their EPs for them. And they were working on the Prisoner album when I was pregnant with our daughter, Raina. And it was a really difficult pregnancy. Raina had a rare developmental disorder, so uh, we had to do some procedures in the hospital while she was still in utero and I was going to the hospital in the morning for the procedures and then running across the football field into Sydney Uni to give lectures I was just determined that being female wasn't going to impinge on me being an academic which is kind of weird right but I kept saying to the doctors this is why they didn't used to let women into (laughs) academia because they couldn't be trusted physically anyway Raina turned out amazingly she's perfectly healthy she was born a month early, though, because of complications with the pregnancy, and the the album was meant to be finished the day before her original due date. So I, I said to Lachlan, oh, no, I've let you down. You know, the baby's going to come, and <laughs> you haven't finished the album. And I knew that the album was as important to him in a particular way as our child, and I think one of the most amazing things about that time and about loving music myself but also having a job that I really love helped me to understand that so he was working on the album finishing it while I was uh, looking after our child after having a cesarean which was a very tough time but the baby's amazing and the album ended up getting an ARIA award so I was very happy with that outcome. (laughs) All good outcomes. Fantastic. So it's Prisoner from the Jezebels on FBI 94.5.
powerful stuff there from Sydney band the Jezebels that uh, my guest on Out of the Box today, Dr. Rebecca Sheehan, brought in for the show. Thank you so much for bringing that one in. I love that song. I really, I think the Jezebels are amazing. There's such a combination of darkness and pop and a bit of Kate Bush in there as well. Yeah, it's full on. And uh, we've run out of time for the show. We could have gone for a couple of hours. We could have probably gone for more. But um, it is it is almost time for Beth Dalglish to come in and present lunch and serve up some delicious tunes for you. So all I'm, all I'm going to have time to do is thank Dr. Rebecca Sheehan for her uh, time in the studio Thanks today. Thanks so much for having me, Ash. It's yeah. been great. It's been so fun. And thank you for all the amazing song stories. They've, they've got a whole new repertoire of sweet things I can tell people, you know. Uh, so if you ever want to hear Dr. Rebecca Sheehan's dulcet tones uh she comes in every monday to do without with georgia hitch on up for it so that's at about eight is it 15 every monday morning thank you so so much for coming in today thank you all right and we've got one track left uh, and that's from the herd we got a language warning on this one so uh 77 why this song I love this song because it's so in your face. I really love hip hop. I didn't used to get into Australian hip hop that much until I came back from LA and I understood it in a different kind of way. I think this song's really amazingly politically engaged. It sounds amazing and it helps to make that connection between culture and politics that I think is so important for getting some change in this country. Much needed now. Right, fantastic. You've listened to Out of the Box with myself, Ash Bertabez and Dr. Rebecca Sheen. If you want to listen back, you can go and check us out on On Demand and all the songs are going to be on our programs page. The Herd with 77%. of Australians um, agree with John Howard's actions on the Tampa. What happened to the others? The thing is to use military force uh, against uh, refugees, isn't that uh, a little overkill? A spokesman for the line that owns the ship says Australian SAS troops are in danger of breaking the laws of piracy. Undoubtedly, this is the most popular decision as far as the Australian public are concerned the government's made during its reign. The captain, before entering Australian waters, yet sent out a distress signal. Clearly our solution was, um, well, it wasn't any farcical, it was, um, it was immoral. I wish that this problem were not ours. See my race, my deep disgrace You're not even from here 
in the first place And those who are, you want to further debate Nah, no more, never again Whether by fist or pen, I will defend Cause I'm out of loose end The shattered remnants of Aussie dignity I'ma skip whitey, round eyes, surprise me Use your shrivel brain to please explain How the clever country just went down the drain We rode the sheep's back, now the sheep ride you If this is how it's gonna be, don't call me true blue I denounce my ancestors, wounds still fester If you say that so, I suggest you wake up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake up Wake up, these cunts need a shake up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake up Wake up, these cunts need a shake up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake up Wake up, these cunts need a shake up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake up Wake up Talk back, squawking hacks, won't relax Until Jonesy's a manic and laws are all axed 77% of Aussies are racist If you're here, I'll say it to your faces Rich redneck pricks still hold all the aces I'll buy you a beer with an arsenic chaser Better off dead, is that what I've said? Tempting to take for all the blood you've shed No doubt you're as bad as your dads and your mum Mainstream media making me so fucking glum Anglo reality, intellectual cavity Channel 9 bossery, prejudice mentalities I won't be a cash just mention casually, I can't stand for your shit-eating bullies Praying on peeps without a mainstream voice Most of you stay silent, but I've got no choice Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake-up Wake up, these cunts need a shake-up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake-up Wake up, these cunts need a shake-up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake-up Wake up, these cunts need a shake-up Wake up, this country needs a fucking shake-up Wake up Well, I've yelled my lungs out but to no avail Well I've yelled my lungs out But to no avail The very first Q jumper. It was immigrant labour that made Australia plump. But enough is enough. Why these go pack your stuff? Don't wanna live in England? That's fucking tough. I'm sick and tired of this redneck wonderland. Most you stay silent and I can't understand. I just can't understand. It's time for you to wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. These cunts need a shake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. These cunts need a shake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. These cunts need a shake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. Out of the box. Out of the box. Out of the box. Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI. <laughs> 